0: From Carry the Load, these
1: are lessons from the front. Stories of service and sacrifice from our military, veterans, first responders, and their families.
0: In 2006, you are headed to Iraq, uh, specifically to uh, uh, Ahmadiyya. Is that? Atamia. Atamia. And Adamiya is a, a neighborhood of kind of like a, um, suburb. A, a suburb of Iraq and it's in the Northern Baghdad. part.
1: Mm-hmm. We were Northeast of Baghdad, uh, probably 10 minutes from the green zone, uh, which was one of the most secure areas in the whole entire country of right. Iraq, uh, probably 10 or 15 minutes from, from the green zone. So for us, you know, our company was in Baghdad and each of the teams had generally different missions. But overall we were primarily focused on human trying to collect and gather human intelligence. Okay. So we could feed the machine, feed the machine with intelligence and information. So other folks could go out and hit those targets, kill capture because I had a young team and they wanted to fight. They wanted to see action. A lot of them, it was their first rotation. By this point in my career, it was my third Iraq rotation. So I'd been around, so I knew some of the guys would get a little, you know, a little feisty. And sometimes we would go out and do kind of a presence patrol in Adamia just with, just with us. Um, and then we also, we volunteered, uh, with the 101st cause they'd ask, Hey, if we ever run into problems, will you help us? We know you, you got your sensitive mission and you're mm-hmm. doing something different than what we're doing. But if we're just right across the road, if we run into, to help. Or if we run into trouble, will you come help us? And we were like, absolutely.
0: So when you say right across the road, was it like right across a highway? Was it right across, um, a four-way stop in a, in a suburban neighborhood? What, what, how close were you in proximity to the hundred and first?
1: Uh, we were right beside, we were co-located.
0: Okay. So almost yeah. contiguous.
1: Yeah. We had like a, a, a walled off section there, mm-hmm. uh, the stone wall sort of, and okay. then an entryway, but. They were right here and we were right there. So we were co-located, but separate.
0: So the security patrols that you described that, that you guys had to have was that, uh, or the patrols, I don't think you said security, but was it for your own security or was that part of your, uh, intelligence gathering mission?
1: Uh, I mean, sure. We did like to get atmospherics and it was a great way for us to be, you know, to get, uh familiar with the city by us driving out there you know just uh special forces guys so we did like to do that we like to get familiar with the city sometimes we would do reconnaissance mm-hmm. where it just looks like we're just a couple vehicles rolling around you know doing whatever but there're sometimes that we would be looking at target houses or neighborhoods i think when
0: most people hear about you know you come into country uh you set up a quote-unquote compound um or a fort or a base or whatever the case may be. Most people are thinking it's kind of remote, but you guys were right smack in the middle of the population. Yes. And so
1: explain how the
0: whole how, what were your living arrangements like?
1: So, um, I believe this all started back in 03, you know, for the initial invasion and US troops came in. So, our compound was called camp Apache. It's, it actually, people call it different things. Camp Apache F O B Apache, which F O B is a forward operating base. That you was developed the developed a relationship contr- with these. We people. developed a relationship. We paid them. They were, they were part of our staff. We treated them like we treated our own. And I think what's
0: important to point out here is that, um, the Muslim population is overwhelmingly Sunni versus Shia. And for people that don't understand, is it safe to say that that Sunni Shia is like Republican Democrat? Because because you can't. Re- there's not really a whole lot of difference in if any difference in how they dress. There's no ethnic difference. It's just a belief.
1: Correct? Yeah. Yeah. I would say that's a- okay.
0: And and so um, the Sunnis are the overwhelming majority inside the Muslim population, but yet in Iraq, it's actually flip-flop. Shias are, are, the, are the overwhelming. So you were, you were in concert with the majority inside Iraq, but that all changed. That all, or there was an attempt for that to change, and the first big explosion happened in February of 2006. So walk us through what happened in February 2006 that led to a lot of the troubles you dealt with.
1: Yeah. So you're right. Uh, the Sunnis were a minority, but Saddam Hussein was Sunni mm-hmm. and he ruled with an iron fist, as you know. So that's how he was able, you know, he had gassed his own people. He'd gassed the Kurds. So that's how he was able to maintain control of his people was with an iron fist and power. But you're right. The Sunnis were the you know, the, actually they were the minority in Iraq. Uh, So 22 February 2006 happens in Iraq. Uh, Keep in mind, our our rotation was January to August 06. Okay. And that's when we were in Baghdad. 22 February 2006, uh, Sunni militants, Al-Qaeda terrorists, uh, they they bombed one of the largest Shia shrines in Iraq. It was in Samara, which was north of us. Uh, They didn't totally pancake it collapsed it all the way down, but they did significant damage and it created such an uproar. It, it no kidding ignited a civil war in Iraq. I think we were kind of teetering
0: it was this a power whole time.
1: Camp. Yeah. Yeah. We were teetering the whole time from the initial invasion in Oh three, all the way up till February 22nd. Oh six. That was the one thing that was like pushed it right over the top. And, uh, we saw it immediately uh, with the, the killings and the torture and all kinds of things like that. Um, we saw it immediately, the after effects of that.
0: And so when you say that you saw it immediately, was it just prevalent immediately or was it like in the vicinity where you
1: were? We saw it in the vicinity. Uh, they would, you know, intimidation tactics, they'd kill a bunch of people and drop them off, just dump them in the streets. And you could tell that they were, you know, their, their arms had been bound behind them, shot in the head. Some folks had been tortured. So that was like a big, huge intimidation tactic and they wanted to intimidate. Uh, I mean, this was going back and forth a lot, but you know, that was a way for them to intimidate people in Atomia. So we had a front row seat. I mean, I'm looking at Atomia, uh, every day from our compound. I mean, it's literally right across the road. I mean, I could throw a rock at Adamia, so, um, so we saw it really, really quickly. She is killing
0: Sunnis, Sunnis killing Shias. And how did that impact your day-to-day as far as your mission and, and, and gathering humint?
1: Yeah, well, we were definitely gathering a lot of intelligence. Um, it seemed like the one thing that the enemy agreed upon, even though they hated each other, they hated us worse. They hated Americans worse. So, um, so we definitely, you know, because you know, we would hit targets that were Shia, we would, you know, we felt like we were equal opportunity. You know, we just wanted to do our job and, and complete the mission. So, um, so we definitely, I mean, it, it just seemed like we were in the middle. And that was the one thing that they could agree on was we hate Americans worse than we hate each other. So uh, it was a weird place for us to be, actually. So did you find yourself fighting both? Um, we did. We did. Uh, there's some areas of Baghdad that are primarily uh, Shia. Other areas, Adamiya, pretty much all Sunni. But, but yeah, we did, we did find a mix for sure.
0: How often were you getting into scrapes with the locals?
1: Uh, if it wasn't seven days a week, it was easily five or six days a week either. And this, I, and I don't mean to make this sound like, you know, Fallujah, like right in the middle of all of that, like an Oh four Oh five. But sometimes it seemed like to us, at least that some of the, like maybe the teenagers Anatomia, like just would get bored and they would want to shoot at the American compound and they they'd bring out their AKs and they'd fire some rounds. I mean, I'm not trying to make it seem like Fallujah. No, I know exactly we what you're Constantly saying. got hit with something. And then because it wasn't a secret that people knew we were there. I mean, as much as we tried to be, you know, low key and right. not, you know, out in the open, but but if any special operations force and you've got to imagine there's British SAS, there's Delta, there's SEALs, everybody and their brother is hitting targets in and around Baghdad. Mm -hmm. So sometimes if a target would go sideways, their retaliation would be to attack our compound. Like, you know, like we did it, but they, we were just an easy, I guess, just an easy victim. So, uh, it was definitely an interesting, it was definitely an interesting rotation. We got hit with everything, man, everything.
0: Did you feel more comfortable in the compound or out, out on patrol?
1: Well, yeah, I'd be lying. If I said I felt more comfortable outside, I felt more comfortable inside the compound because we had, you know, we had a, a, a good robust guard force. We were there with our 101st guys, our whole team. I didn't worry in my mind about hitting an IED. When you get in that vehicle and you leave that gate, you've got to worry about hitting an IED, or at least it's there you got to deal with it you got to compartmentalize it but it's there you don't you don't lose that and that's just like a really you have to come to grips with that that seems
0: uncomfortable to yeah. say the
1: least like you you
0: it's a world that most of us can't even begin to understand getting on the highway i mean you might be looking out for somebody who is driving erratically but you can see it and react
1: to it here. What you're talking about, there's no reaction. Well, that's the thing, man. That's the thing that the tactics changed so, so much. It was a PhD level chess match between us and the bad guys. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they started out with a very hasty, basic, you know, a house around that's wired or, you know, command detonated or someone's messing around with their phone. So it started out, we didn't have armored vehicles. We had thin skin vehicles and then we had, uh, unarmored Hummers with the doors out so we could porcupine our, our weapons out the door. So it kind of, you know, look like a porcupine and then guys started losing limbs. And then it was like, Hey, we need to go to up armored. So we went to up armored and then for us, you know, the tactics are constantly evolving. So then we're in up armored. And then it's like, Hey, these convoys of like 12 vehicles, (coughs) excuse me, these convoys of 12 vehicles are getting hammered. So what we're going to do, our tactic is we're, we're mobile. We're small. We're in a couple vehicles. So speed will be our security. You know, they're going to have to really be on their game. If we're going 60 miles an hour down this road, like speeds, our security. Well then the enemy had a vote and they moved their chess piece and they said, Hey, we're going to come out with, uh, the EFPs, the explosive uh, foreign projectiles, uh, that came from Iran, by the way. And those had like those garage door sensors, basically like that same technology. I'm not a huge technology guy, but it was basically you hit that beam, like people are coming into their mm-hmm. house or whatever you hit that beam, you're getting hit. It doesn't matter if you're going 20 miles an hour or 80 miles an hour. So, and then they our chess piece was we had those big long pole things on the bumper that would, that would kind of stretch down. So it would hit the beam and hopefully it would explode before. But, just an example of the tactics and the, and the technology, and it was constantly changing, man, just moving, moving. Yeah, chess match
0: sounds like a really good explanation of it because it is, it's, it's a, it's a constant state of action and reaction. April of 2006 happened. How was that different from everything else you'd experienced in what you just described?
1: Yeah. So 17 April, 2006, um, I would say from January till, till April, till mid April, there was a lot of harassment fire. There was a lot of things going on at night. They would get a little braver for whatever reason at night, but on April 17th specifically it's daylight. We had no uh, air support because of the weather. And we're hearing, we heard the gunfire and the explosions and things like that before we left. But, uh, they were actually maneuvering on American forces. So that was very outside the norm in Adamia at this time, like that, that really signified we're fighting a different level. This isn't like guys trying to protect their home. And, you know, because there was a lot of looting and stealing, like this isn't neighborhood watch type stuff.
0: So the, the, the harassment and interdiction fire fire, the H and I fire that, that, that had been occurring, likely teenagers
1: as you described them. Probably.
0: Um, now all of a sudden you're, you're facing a maneuvering element which I'm assuming Al Qaeda?
1: Al Qaeda most likely, yeah.
0: And so that, that creates a completely different level of intensity. And I think it's also important to point out as you, as you continue on the story, as special forces go, y'all are used to creating your own missions and being very proactive you're now finding yourselves in a reactive, uh, um, fashion here. And so how did that factor into that day for you?
1: Yeah, I think we had a lot of confidence because we had supported the 101st before. So I don't think we re- it really clicked in our brain until we got there. Um, once we made it to Antar square right in the middle of Adamia, um, and we linked up with the Iraqi army. And then we started realizing like, okay, this is a whole different, different ball game. But, um, I felt like we had prepared for that moment. We were ready for that moment. I had some, some guys that were really hungry, you know, cause I, I had a small team. It was, I only had six guys with me in the vehicle. And then I had an interpreter because people have to realize we still had a compound that's truly administrative. Yeah. Yeah. We still had a compound that we had to deal with and man, just in case that compound. So we could never, you know, anytime that we left, we could never leave like, Hey, we're going to take the whole team and we're going to be in three or four vehicles. Sure. Like we had to split, we had to do split ops and we had to be comfortable with that. But we operated uh surprise speed, violence of action, overwhelming firepower. So, uh, when we got there, it was a little different, but we were ready for it. We were prepared, and the guys were hungry. They wanted to fight. And it was like, let's just unleash these guys, and here we go, buckle up. How long had they
0: been fighting before you guys reacted?
1: So, they had been fighting this engagement. I think it had been like close to five hours. Five hours. Five hours, daylight, in Baghdad, back and forth, exchanging fire. Yeah.
0: That's a long firefight,
1: terribly long, yeah. Long time.
0: And so what was their demeanor attitude? How were they when you got there?
1: So the Iraqi army, if you could just imagine driving up to Antar square, we're in two vehicles and just seeing the fear on the soldier's faces, the Iraqi army soldiers. We didn't run into the hundred first quite yet, but just the look of fear, desperation, you know, miserable. Uh, and then it changed in a second when they saw us and they realized who we were because typically we had supported at night. So they kind of knew who we were, but they didn't really, they'd never seen us before April 17th was like, Hey, here we are. This is who we are because we look different and we you know, we had different gear. We had different equipment. Our vehicles looked different. We had beards.
0: And this was daylight.
1: This was daylight. So they saw us and it went from fear and desperation to eyes wide. Like, oh my gosh, these are these crazy special forces guys. I wonder what they're going to do. You know, this could get interesting. That was kind of like what I was thinking at the time. How big was their element? Um, I want to say they had a couple platoons. So it wasn't, you know, maybe it was a platoon. Uh, cause I think the hundred first, maybe they had a squad out there. So it was probably a platoon plus, but they were pretty stationary.
0: So you've got about 50 personnel call it, you know, 35 to 50 personnel, um, six to seven people show up and their hopes immediately
1: lift. We gave him some inspiration. We gave him some inspiration and I'm a strong believer in that courage is contagious. And, and that is one of the things that, that went through my brain when I, when I got there, because, you know, split second decisions that I felt they needed a little bit of that inspiration. And there was, there was something that was kind of going through my mind when we pulled up and we were trying to situate the truck. So we weren't just eating everything that was coming in all the incoming fire. Um, but I'd said to myself, 10 feet tall and bulletproof, 10 feet tall and bulletproof. Uh, and I, maybe I was just trying to, to hype myself up a little bit, but I really wanted to get out of that vehicle and inspire confidence into the, to our Iraqi army partners and say, Hey, okay, we're in a firefight, but it's going to be okay. You know, uh, I linked up, I got out of my vehicle, my armored up armored vehicle, and I walked up calmly, calm breeds, calm. Another one of my, uh, I think is an important lesson for, for leaders nowadays, calm breeds, calm, uh, courage is contagious. I calmly walked over and their platoon leader, captain, whatever he was, uh, was kind of hunched over in this little area. And I linked up with him and we exchanged some, some words and. Um, trying to make him comfortable, get him situated. And I just told him, Hey man, we're right here with you. Because at that time I I felt like they didn't feel valued, the Iraqi army. Sometimes they didn't feel valued. Uh, maybe they just thought that we were just going to leave them out there and they were all going to get overrun and get killed or whatever. But I just wanted them to know, Hey, we're here. We're going to fight this thing with you guys.
0: So when you get there and, and, and do you immediately see that change in them? And then how did that change begin to morph itself into, uh, ultimately victory?
1: Yeah, I, I did notice a, a little sparkle in of the, the Iraqi commander, like I, I think I did, you know, portray some of that confidence and that inspiration and, and maybe, you know, a little bit of a spark or maybe a little pep in the step. Um, And you know, of course I had my interpreter with me. So we were communicating and I was able to tell him exactly what we were getting ready to do. He told me where the hundred first guys were. And I said, Hey, I'm going to go link up with them and I'm going to, you know, see if I can develop this thing a little bit more and then we're going to start fighting. So get your guys ready. Here we go. Um, and I just kind of felt like the momentum was changing a little bit at that point. Uh, so we ended up leaving there. We went and linked up with the hundred first. We kind of drove behind some of these areas to, to kind of drive up on the hundred first got the same picture from their commander. It was like, Hey, this is a whole different, they got RPGs. They got PKM machine guns. They got AK 47s. They're well equipped. There's a bunch of them. You know, we, we thought there was probably after it was all said and done, maybe 50, maybe more, uh, people, excuse me. Um, so we got the same picture and, and I guess the way the, the streets were work, were set up. There was like a north south running road mm-hmm. that ran this way. And then there's all these side streets that were off the road. And a lot of these guys were in these side streets and they were kind of popping in and out and shooting down. They were trying to get
0: flanking fire down, down the main, road. they were
1: trying to get flanking fire. So when I linked up with the hundred and first and he explained kind of what was going on, uh, I instantly was like, we need to start hitting some of these side streets. And, uh, I told him, I said, Hey, I'm going to take my two vehicles. You guys get ready, get ready to go. I'm going to take my two vehicles because we're quick. We didn't have to deal with the Iraqis and all their vehicles. We could just really hit people quick and fast that surprise speed violence Mm -hmm. of action, overwhelming firepower. Um, and that's exactly what we did, man. Uh, we left 101st and we started driving that north south road. And then we just, sometimes we would roll past a side street and then the second vehicle would stop and engage. Uh, sometimes we would both stop and engage down that side street. But, um, our first major contact, um, we had, we had a vehicle move on us, maneuver on us, which, couldn't really believe it at the time. That wasn't very common. And, uh, we had some guys pile out. Uh, we had a guy with an RPG that was getting ready to launch and our 50 Cal gunner, uh, ate them all up and which I'm glad because it would have been catastrophic if we would sure. got hit with that RPG. But at that point when we engaged those guys and eliminated that threat, I think it really changed the, the momentum of the whole day, the whole fight, because I think they saw like, okay, these guys you punched
0: them in the nose. Pretty good.
1: Yeah. These guys are willing to fight and, and they're, they're offensive. Like they're coming at us. So as soon as that happened, we worked some more of those side streets. We went up that North South road, then we came back and we linked up with the 101st and that's when we all got online us, the 101st Iraqi army. And we just started clearing that whole mess. Uh, were you having to clear houses
0: or were you just clearing, clearing dirt?
1: streets, streets? Okay. Streets. Yeah. And it was a 360 environment because you know, it was just a 360 urban fight and things were just coming from everywhere. So as you push online like that, I mean, surely
0: there were casualties going on here.
1: You know, I think that's why this, this battle is not like as well known. Uh, as it is, because I think we only had minor casualties and it was on the Iraqi side and, and maybe God was just looking down on us and it was a great day for us. Maybe, obviously, maybe, I don't know, but, um, but the firepower was overwhelming. It was overwhelming and we did do a lot of damage. Uh, the enemy took a lot of casualties, but for whatever reason, uh, we didn't have any hundred and first casualties, any wounded, no killed, no, no wounded on our side, no killed on our side. It was, it was absolutely a miracle. It was a miracle. But
0: yet you found yourself in a kill zone at one point and a kill zone being, uh, a, a, a heavily, uh, fired upon piece of ground.
1: Yeah. The enemy wasn't stupid. They had some, they had road, they had some of the roads blocked off and they had wire and old refrigerators and barrels and tires. So they had all of these things like strung up to keep people out of these areas. So as we're going down these little side streets and they were smart about the way they set them up, because if you drove right up on the obstacle, then you were exposed like that 4d environment that you're talking about. Like you got everything that you're mm-hmm. trying to deal with. So that's why I think they set it up that way. So our vehicles to try to keep our vehicles from eating RPGs, we stopped short. But someone had to go out there and clear those obstacles. Uh, another one of my leadership type points is, you know, leaders clear obstacles, you know, st- to allow the team to, to operate. And, um, uh, there were many times that I was clearing those obstacles under fire. Uh, and for whatever reason, I was just fortunate enough. I mean, there are, there are times that I think, you know, an inch here an inch there, it could have been totally different. Uh, But for whatever reason, uh, I was able to to clear those obstacles and open up a path so our vehicles could get through, and then we just continued doing doing damage.
0: Yeah, you you refer to this as your alive day.
1: Yeah, no doubt. And
0: meaning that you feel very fortunate to be alive, and you very easily could not be because of that. Yeah. What – is there a specific thing that you remember – that made you go, holy cow, how in the world did I just survive that?
1: Yeah, two, two, probably, um, clearing those obstacles, you know, trying to get rid of the wire and all that and just the rounds. I think that's when I really was like, man, this is bad. Like it's coming from, like, I I don't know where it's coming from. Like, it's not like I could just look over and it's like, oh, it's one guy. Like, okay, watch out for that guy but it was just coming from everywhere. So that was probably one. And then the second time was, and this is right before our engine block got shot out so bad that it killed our vehicle. The second time we were on a, we were on a street and I was outside and I saw these guys on the rooftop. Our 50 Cal gunner is firing a different direction because he's firing at his, his targets that he's trying to deal with. And these guys on the rooftop popped up. So I'm engaging with these guys, um, going back and forth and it's close. It's not very far. Um, and I, you know, I was, I was right beside the engine block. So I was trying to use that as cover. I'm engaging these guys with my rifle and I really want my 50 Cal gunner to kind of shift over and, and deal with these guys. Cause I was like, man, there's four of them. I don't know how, how long I just didn't want them to have, you know, if they didn't have any fire coming their way, they could have easily just had a great position, and probably killed our 50 cal gunner. So I was at least trying to keep their heads down or keep them moving.
0: So you were close enough to be able to understand there were four of them.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. So so give people a, a,
0: an idea of the proximity of of the bad guys.
1: Probably 75 meters, 75 to 100 meters. It's close. And that's close. Yeah, they're they're higher. Um, they were firing down. So they had, they had an advantage there, but luckily the 50 Cal gunner at some point was able to, to shift over and eliminate, uh, those threats. But I say that's probably the second time that I was like,
0: I'm about to die.
1: Yeah. This, this could be bad. And then the engine getting shot out was like, okay, I'm not imagining all of these rounds coming in like Hornets, you know, like, when our, uh, trail vehicle called and said, Hey man, you guys are leaking fluids so bad that it's everywhere. And I couldn't even relay the message and our, our vehicle stopped. It was dead. So they had shot out our engine block. It was, it was intense.
0: So they, they see, that, so you must have just taken around there.
1: If I think it happened
0: that fast.
1: I think the engine block were taking those rounds that were intended for me. So thank goodness. Um, Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And how long had you been in the fight? So they they were fighting for five hours. Mm-hmm. How long had you been on the ground at that point?
1: It's probably an hour, hour twenty minutes, hour thirty minutes, something like that. That's a
0: lot of combat. That's a long time. How did anybody even have enough ammunition to continue that rate of fire?
1: We carried tons of ammunition. We had we had tons of ammunition. Uh, so we were, and then. I guess we were actually, now that I think about it, we were getting to the point where we were, we were hurting a little bit when our engine got shot out and we towed our vehicle back. We ended up stocking up with even more ammunition. And then okay, we Okay, so back. Help,
0: help me understand that. So, so your, your vehicle is in the kill zone. It gets hit the engine block done. And so then you tow it out of there with the trail vehicle. Okay. I'm assuming they were in the kill zone at that point too, if you were able to tow it.
1: No, no, they were, they were back a little bit more because okay. we were, yeah.
0: So you, they your
1: were, nose was in the kill zone. Our nose was in the kill zone.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So how fortunate that you didn't go any further then. I mean, that, that was a matter of feet.
1: Yeah, that would have hurt. That and so hurt.
0: you guys, your trail vehicle is able to pull you out of there, take you back to the green zone.
1: No, they took us back to Apache. To Apache. Okay. Yeah. They took us back to Apache. We had another vehicle ready to go loaded up to bear and we went right back out.
0: So did you go back out with reinforcements?
1: Nope. Just same package. We had the same package by this point, I think an hour and 20 minutes hour and 30 minutes, it's starting to kind of waver down a little bit. Um, uh, because we knew there wasn't, you know, right where we got engaged and they shot out the engine block there wasn't really much more room that they could operate. They could go back. You know, they were running out of real estate basically.
0: Why wouldn't we bring in more troops at that point?
1: Yeah. The hundred and first, um, they, I think they had been trying to call more folks in and that, that's when they reached out to us cause they knew that we would respond. Um, eventually those reinforcements did get there eventually. So, and it
0: took six and a half, seven hours worth of fighting to get them there.
1: It was just a little bit late. Actually, they had a unit that showed up right around the same time that we did to help reinforce them. And then afterwards, like once we we pushed that last little push, they went back to Abu Hanifa Mosque, which was very sensitive, you know, anything to do with the mosque and us entering a mosque it was us like holy, firing. literally holy ground and you can't fire on it. Right, right, right. So, uh, they were back at Abu Hanifa and they basically just kind of blended back into the population and dropped their weapons, went back to the mosque. And unfortunately they didn't engage us from the mosque for whatever reason. We were all out there. We were all out there waiting. Uh, so I'm glad they didn't test us, but, but yeah, that's, that's pretty much how it ended. At that point uh they went back to abu hanifa and we were waiting and not a shot was fired and then all of like people started coming out of the woodwork it seemed like
0: yeah showing up now to, to yeah. say hey we're here to help
1: yeah after seven hours
0: was that upsetting
1: not really i mean i i kind of get it i mean I, I i get it i mean i think for the 101st they were really upset but I mean, for us, it was
0: it's just another day.
1: It was just another day. At this point, we were, we had a little bit of addiction to violence at this point. Now that I've, I've had time to reflect on this, that's kind of like where we were at as a team. It might sound a little crazy, but that's, that was interesting to us. Like we wanted to do that. This was our job. Like we're getting after it. We wanted to do that. It's a different so, mindset.
0: So you received the Bronze Star for actions there for for being ten feet tall and bulletproof.
1: Bronze Star Medal with Valor.
0: And I, I think that in and of itself, you know, what you talked about being ten feet tall and bulletproof. I think there are so many leadership lessons to be taken away from that because the men that you lead, the people that you lead take on your personality. If they see you scared, they're going to be scared. You didn't lose anybody that day. Did you lose anybody at all?
1: I eventually did lose, lose someone. Um, it wasn't during my rotation. Um, but I had a young special forces guy. His name is Dave Roten. And, uh, he was with me in 06 and 07. He was one of the best guys that I had. Uh, so I didn't lose him, uh, as a team sergeant during my rotation, but he ended up getting out of the service out of the green berets and he went and did the contractor route and he was eventually killed, uh, in November of 2014 in Afghanistan. Uh, so I do, you know, I wear a bracelet, uh, in honor of Dave, uh, 27 November, 2014 was when he was killed. And he was a family guy that like, I didn't learn that until after David passed, excuse me. I didn't learn that till after David passed, how much he was the glue to his family, you know, because then you're, you know, you're going through the funeral service and you're, you're trying to write your eulogy and the flag presentation, all those type of things. Right. And just to learn how much he was the glue that kept his family together, um, uh, that was pretty powerful cause we all knew he was a great dude and we all loved him and he was, you know, he was awesome. But to see that from the family side, uh, was like, wow, man, what a, just a, a great guy. Great Probably guy.
0: didn't surprise you though, that he was, Did,
1: uh, it didn't surprise me. Didn't surprise me. Yeah, not at all.
0: Well, thank you for sharing, uh, Dave's story.
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah.
0: Tell me a little bit about the uh, medal of honor museum. Cause that that's, I think it's safe to say that you're continuing to serve.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm i uh, I've been working at the foundation, the national medal of honor museum foundation for a year, chief of business operations. I feel very fortunate. We got a great team. Uh, it's a three pronged project. Uh, we're building a museum and a leadership Institute. That's going to be co-located in Arlington, Texas. And then eventually we'll be building a monument for the Medal of Honor recipients, uh, in Washington, DC on the national mall.
0: Why do you think this project is so important to America and specifically the youth that you just mentioned?
1: Yeah. It seems like we've gotten away from a lot of our, uh, like some of the things that really unite us as Americans and, you know, we talk a lot about the six values that are inherent in every medal of honor recipient, courage, sacrifice, commitment, integrity, citizenship, patriotism. And and I think all of those things are really important that if we can use the lessons of medal of honor recipients, uh, and they're not all superheroes. Some of them grew up and they were bullied Or, you know, there's, there's all these different types of stories from them growing up and what led them to this action. But I think the people can glean uh, lessons from these stories. And I think these values are really important. And, uh, general Brady, general Pat Brady medal of honor recipient for Vietnam. We were just at an event with him uh, a few days ago or last, no, it was early this week. Um, him and Flo Groberg, but, they are so passionate. Like we need this museum and this Institute to educate and to share these stories. So people will know and, and and hopefully have a little gratitude for the people that have come before us and all the things that they've done. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah.
0: Thank you very much for sharing all that. And thanks for being here, man. This is, uh, um, this has been fun. This has been enlightening. It's been educational for me and-
1: uh, yes, yeah, it has been great. If this
0: resonated with you in the least, please subscribe and like, and please, please, please share it with at least one person. These are the stories that make us uniquely American. These are the stories that preserve the integrity of our nation.